Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. I'm Jim Townsend. And I'm so glad you could join us. With the conclusion of the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Party Congress last week, Xi Jinping has now secured a precedent-breaking third term as General Secretary. The Congress was also notable for Xi's moves to replace the Politburo Standing Committee with a slate of his most committed loyalists, cementing his grasp on power. Against the backdrop of these events, EU leaders met last week in Brussels to discuss their approach to Beijing, raising concerns over Europe's continued dependence on China for technology and raw materials. At the summit, European Commission President von der Leyen described an acceleration of tensions in Europe-China relations, in particular noting Beijing's ongoing strategic alliance with Moscow. Meanwhile, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's planned visit to the PRC this week poses a risk to future European cohesion on China, having drawn criticism from other EU leaders for complicating the bloc's efforts to take a unified approach to Beijing. So just to discuss the party Congress and a lot more, we're really welcome to welcome back to the podcast our China experts, um, Bonnie Glazer and Dave Schulman. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right, Bonnie is director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She was previously senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at CSIS, while also serving as a non-resident fellow with the Lowry Institute in Sydney, Australia, and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. And Dave is senior director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council, where he leads the council's work on China. He served as one of the U.S. government's top experts on East Asia, most recently as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. Okay, just to set the stage, Bonnie and Dave, if you all can give us uh, the Cliff Notes version of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, National Party Congress last week, what do we all need to know and understand about what happened? And Bonnie, let's start with you. Sure. Well, there really is um, uh, a lot to say. As you mentioned in your opening, uh, Xi Jinping really ran the tables in the personnel realm. He put three of his of his former uh, personal secretaries on the standing committee of the Politburo. Uh, he retired several people who were under the age of 68 who could have served uh, longer on the standing committee, but they were not people who were considered his loyalists. So he's really just stacked the standing committee and the Politburo um, with his own people. There's nobody on the standing committee below the age of 60. Xi Jinping himself was 54 when he was putting on the, on the standing committee and designated essentially successor for Hu Jintao. So we know that there is no designated successor. I think we all can conclude that barring any um, health problems or major political crises um, that he will serve uh, for another 10 years. And then, of course, Xi Jinping delivered a very lengthy political report. And uh, this uh, report basically sums up the achievements of the prior uh, five years and then talks about the policies for the future. And uh, the, the accomplishments for the last five years include things like um, putting patriots in control in Hong Kong, which should surprise no one. Uh, and the agenda for the next five years um, is continuity with existing policies uh, domestically. And I will just um, add before turning it over uh, to Dave, that what really struck me was Xi Jinping's very dark description of the international situation, which 
has been becoming more pessimistic, certainly over the last year. Uh, but uh, the the phrase that had been in the political report since the first uh, since the thirteenth Party Congress, um, which is that peace and development um, are the theme of the current era or the times, uh, was absent from the report. And there was a lot of very dark language about the stormy seas and the risks that China face, uh, faces going forward. Before, Dave, I turn it over to you. Bonnie, do we know what happened to Hu Jintao? I mean, I think that was, as a non-China watcher, that was certainly dominated my Twitter thread for at least a short time. Um, and I wonder if you can, if you have any thoughts on that episode and how we should understand it. Well, I hope that somebody uh, who can read lips uh, can look at that video and tell us what Hu Jintao was saying, and particularly what Li Jiangshu, who was sitting next to Hu Jintao, was saying. Uh, uh, but it, it's it's impossible for observers uh, to know exactly what was said uh, unless we can read lips, and maybe our intelligence community will do a better job than than think tank experts. Uh, but my theory is that uh, the real focus was on the papers that were in front of Hu Jintao, that they were covered by a red folder. Everybody had those papers in a red folder in front of them. Hu Jintao tried to look at them, and Li Jianshu moved them away, and Hu Jintao tried to take them back, and uh, Li Jianshu would not allow him to. And then, of course, Xi Jinping actually put his hands on his papers so that Hu Jintao could not look at those either. And so one theory is that this was the Central Committee list, maybe even the Politburo list, and, and that maybe Hu Jintao was learning for the first time that none of his people were going to be included either on the Politburo or the Standing Committee. And his protege, Hu Chunhua, who was on the Politburo, had been demoted to the Central Committee. And if indeed he had just learned about that, he was probably extremely agitated. But that's just one theory. Other people think that it might have been some kind of a health episode, and that can't be ruled out either. Dave, over to you. You can pick up on that or continue kind of with your... No, I won't add too much there. I mean, I think Bonnie covered it well, and it's still nobody knows the answer for sure, and we may never know. Um, it is, I think, still highly plausible that it was a health-related issue. He's certainly someone who we know has not been in the greatest of health, but it is also remarkably uh, interesting, the timing, if it was a coincidence that this happened right after the all-important vote on the Central Committee. And as Bonnie said, the, the folks that were in Hu Jintao's kind of classic um, communist loose-leak faction that were all uh, removed and taken down. So I think um, uh, no one knows, but it certainly added a bit of drama to a party Congress that, uh, you know, I think as, as Bonnie covered, there there were not a ton of surprises here. I, I think the, you know, the, the way in which, as we're all saying, she ran the table in, in personnel wise was perhaps to the extreme degree of, of what we were guessing. And the markets, I think, reacted to that. Um, but everyone who's been watching China for the last five and even 10 years um, knew that Xi Jinping was really underscoring his level of power in the Chinese system. Um, and that it was very likely that he was going to come out of this party Congress with a third term as general secretary and with having put uh, most of his allies in place. And I think it, it you know, really, for those who were unsure, um, it really underscores that power in China now flows through just one man. And there's really no no vestige of a collective leadership system left. And I think that that's, that's really highly significant because when, you know, 
typically at this time of year, uh, China watchers are kind of looking at who's where and who has what portfolio and what or what that might mean for policies going forward. And at this point, you can't really say, well, Li Chiang looks like he's going to be the premier, therefore he'll have the economic portfolio, and therefore that will tell you something, I think, very significant about where China's going economically. It really all comes down to what, what Xi Jinping wants and, and says. And we've seen that in this current uh, last five years with, with Li Keqiang as premier. Um, and then I would just agree with what Bonnie said on the, the uh, two things I'll say on the, the work report. One, uh, I think, yes, very dark security external environment. And that word security, notably um, all over the work report in a way that you haven't seen before, not just in terms of classic national security, but around food security and energy security and economic security. And I think that is indicative of uh, a party that's that's insecure. But I think it's also indicative of the fact that you have a raised sense of vulnerability um, in, in China and, and Xi Jinping personally, um, particularly around, and I'm sure we'll get to this, the potential for some sort of crisis around the Taiwan Strait or some other crisis uh, at which China now needs to deal with uh, what the United States and others might do that, that put China at risk. And so needing to deal with not just what's happening in the military domain, but also uh, those vulnerabilities and, 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 and the need to be self-sufficient, um, I think also comes through strongly uh, in the speech, both in the economic space, but also in the technological space. And of course, that's relate, relating to a lot of these conversations we're having about U.S. policy, Chinese policy, uh, and the bifurcating technological landscape that we're looking at going forward. Um, one other thing I'll note is, is on the economic side, I think people were hoping for some indication that there would be a lifting of the strict zero COVID policy, which of course has had a really negative impact uh, on the Chinese people in many cities, and, and it continues, uh, you know, continues to roll on now, uh, but also has had a really big impact on uh, China's uh, dampening China's economic growth um, in, in conjunction with uh, some fundamental structural uh, problems in China's economy um, that are reflected by a crisis in the property sector and also China's um, uh, increasingly statist economic policies under Xi Jinping. So no signal that that's going to change. Uh, the IMF just, uh, I think, this week came out with a reforecast of China's economic growth for this year, going to be around 3.2%, um, which is a drop of over a point uh, from, from April. So for those who are watching closely um, as to where we think China's headed economically and where the policies are going to go, uh, there was also no good news on that front from the party congress either. Is there maybe just to stick one second on the domestic before we move to the foreign policy implications of the party congress, is there any sense that any of those challenges that you mentioned, slower uh, economic growth and expected, the zero COVID policy, you know, the question that comes up is, you know, will those pose any meaningful challenges to Xi and the regime there? Um, can you just talk to us about I mean, obviously, he's just centralized and consolidated power. But is there anything out there in the domestic environment that you think poses any kind of challenge to the regime? Um, well, I'll let Bonnie jump in in a sec. But let me, I'll just say, I think that there's absolutely got to be, and there is, you know, um, disgruntlement and uh, and an unhappiness with Xi Jinping's regime. And you saw that just ahead of the Party Congress when someone unfurled a very brave man uh, unfurled a banner um, protesting uh, the zero COVID policy and, and the Xi Jinping's policies right ahead of the party Congress. Um, that's just representative of what we know is kind of, you know, bubbling up in parts of society. But the question is, is there any indication that there's some sort of unified opposition, uh, particularly at the, at the higher levels uh, in the Chinese system uh, that Xi Jinping has to worry about, particularly when he controls 
the military, the propaganda system, um, and and so forth. And I think the answer at this point, uh, I think, is is no. Um, I think there there was a lot of, as there always is ahead of a party congress, some frothy debate about whether that kind of pushback was going to be reflected at the leadership level at the party congress. Obviously, we didn't see that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, going forward, the economic space is the place where he's most vulnerable, for sure. Um, Traditionally, you know, China watchers talk about the uh, you know economic growth as the key pillar of legitimacy of the party. What we're watching right now is an interesting dynamic where it seems like uh, she is willing to sacrifice some level of economic growth in order to ensure that security uh, that we're talking about, which is interesting. And and if he's truly going to continue to go after the private sector um, as he has in the last couple of years, um, how he's going to do that, um, and also at the same time. Um, come back to a more uh, growth uh, growth positive forecast is, is a key question that I think everyone's watching. I would agree with that um, and, and just add that China has the uh, toolkit uh, available to prevent any kind of what Dave referred to as disgruntlement from being translated into any real threatening kind of opposition to seize rule. Uh, they can identify uh, where people are, you know, they track them through these uh, apps uh, that they use, whether it's WeChat or, or um, Weibo, um, and of course the medical apps. Uh, uh, so uh, Xi Jinping has been able to remove people who are in the uh, elite, who are potential opponents of his policies, and been able to prevent any member of the public from uh, causing any kind of, uh, of an uproar um, and organized dissent uh, uh, against him. Uh, I mean, one uh, notable example was several years ago, there was a young woman who took a can of black ink and threw it at a poster of Xi Jinping. Um, and that became known for a short while publicly. And then of course was removed from uh, any kind of social media. And she disappeared and her father was arrested and recently uh, he died in prison. And so uh, there is no way that any, any Chinese citizen in the People's Republic of China uh, can launch any, any kind of threat, I think, to Xi Jinping. The real question is when, whether any member of the elite going forward decides that they become so uh, uh, opposed to Xi Jinping's policies, if they think that they are against national interest, and then they try to do something about it. I think it's highly unlikely, but of course we can't rule that out. Well, thank you both. Uh, that was just super, really helpful for all of us Europhiles who rarely cast a, a vision over to Asia. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, that was very helpful. Let me ask you all about the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. They both have come out now. Uh, and um, was wondering what you all felt in terms of how, what those strategies said about China uh, and, and the China-Europe balance and that kind of thing. Did you feel it was a pretty good, pretty good layout of, a, of the strategy and we're going in a good place or would you have tweaked it here or there a little bit? Bonnie, you wanna start? I'm gonna let Dave go first. Okay, go ahead. Um, I felt like it was uh, a good overview of China as, you know, the most consequential uh, competitor that we have. And I thought, you know, the, the interesting contrast in the NSS in particular between China 
and Russia, I think very clearly laying out uh, the challenge that they pose collectively, but also being very clear uh, about uh, the, the threat, the, the more immediate threat that Russia poses, which we're all watching uh, unfold, unfortunately, for the past many months in Ukraine, and, and what we face from, from China, which is this more fundamental um, long-term challenge. And I think I, I like the way the administration has been framing this in terms of China being the, the one competitor that has both the interest and the capability to fundamentally reshape uh, the global order um, in ways that are that are uh, not uh, in line with our interests and values, and also those of our our European allies. So I think it, it it does a very good job of laying laying out the China challenge. I don't think there was anything terribly new in either of them, uh, but I also didn't expect there to be. Um, and I think it's certainly you know in light of what Bonnie and I have just been saying in terms of what uh, Xi Jinping laid out at the Party Congress, and we also didn't really touch on the fact that. There's a lot of language in there that that you know the United States is not specifically named, but it's very clear what country uh, and which country's alliance network Xi Jinping is talking about when he's talking about foreign countries interfering and and essentially bullying China um, and China's need to struggle, which is a, a very important word in the kind of um, you know Chinese Communist Party lexicon against that that uh, that challenge. So to have that happen, and at the same time you have the the NSS and and just very recently the NDS come out. And these, I'm sure we'll talk about this, the uh, the expanded export controls um, that the United States just laid out really frames for us at this moment how uh, fraught uh, the U.S.-China relationship is and how tense it's getting um, and the importance of the fact that we have a, a face-to-face uh, Xi-Biden visit potentially coming up at the G20 in just a couple of weeks. Right. Bonnie, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with all of that. You know, the national security strategy uh, came after our Secretary of State Blinken had delivered a major China speech in May, and there were many of the lines from that speech in the NSS. Uh, so there really there wasn't anything surprising in the administration, of course, wasn't trying to make any news. They were just trying to pull together the many threads of, uh, of our China strategy. And they rolled out this new um, sort of bumper sticker um, invest, align, compete, um, invest in America, align with our allies, and uh, get those two things right in order to compete with China. And that's really what the Biden administration has been doing since day one. So it certainly comes as no surprise, but there wasn't a lot of talk about cooperation, although it did say that where our interests um, you know, converge uh, with, uh, with the Chinese that would be willing uh, to cooperate. Um, I found that there was a lot of language that really was intended to reassure our allies that we want to put in place these guardrails or risk reduction measures. We want to prevent the relationship from spiraling, spiraling out of control, but no certainty, of course, we'll be able to do that. But our allies want to hear that we're trying to manage our competition with China. Uh, the, the NDS, uh, of course, uh, referred to China as the overall pacing challenge. We've known that since very early in the administration. And right. the China, China was described as our most consequential strategic competitor for the coming decades. Of course, Russia was seen as the acute threat. and But the PRC is seen as the only country that has the wherewithal to be able to provide a a really major threat to us and to reshape the international order 
um, it has the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do so. And that was the important, I think, sentence in, uh, in the NDS. Um, so, and, and I think Dave's point is really important about the distinction between China and Russia, because if you'll remember in um, 2017 and the Trump administration had come out with, uh, at the end of that year, their NSS, and uh, Russia and China had been put into the same basket, both revisionist powers. And the Biden administration really wanted to distinguish between them um, and even suggest maybe that they have to be dealt with differently but I'm not, it didn't roll out what the strategy should be for dealing with them differently. Do we drive a wedge? Do we, do we try to push them together? Um, I, I think there's still a lot of discussion about whether there's um, any opportunity there, uh, but the threats are different. And I think it was useful to say that. Right. I want to come back to the Russia-China piece maybe towards the end, um, but just to come back to the party Congress one more time on the foreign policy side, Dave, you've heard me talk about this a lot, you know, this personalization of power. It's something that I've studied not in the China context, but across authoritarian regimes kind of as a category. And one thing we know is that these personalist dictatorships tend to pursue the most risky and aggressive foreign policies. They're the most likely to start wars, including against democracies. Um, what do you expect of Chinese foreign policy in the next several years? I mean, are you concerned about the personalization of power? How do you think that will shape uh, Chinese foreign policy? Do you see that as she personalizes power, that is his kind of appetite for risk might grow. And I, I also ask this because we're in so many conversations where there are interesting parallels between Putin and Xi. And of course, they're very different regimes, but the kind of parallels to me continue to grow. And so if we've learned anything from the personalization of Putin, the mistakes that these dictators make, their appetite for risk, are you concerned that with this party Congress that we're moving towards a more assertive, aggressive, um, risk-taking Xi and Chinese foreign policy? Dave, maybe to start with you. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't necessarily think that in the next year we're going to see uh, a, a fundamentally more aggressive China than what we're already seeing and have seen in the last couple of years. But uh, I do think we're going to see a continuation, at the very least, of what we've seen uh, in the last couple of years with, um, you know, more aggression, uh, certainly in, I think, um, or at least continued aggression in the South China Sea and places like that uh, in East Asia. Um, potentially uh, another flare up uh, at the border with, with India. We'll see. Things have calmed a little bit there. Um, but I think a continuation of what we've seen in terms of the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy I don't see any reasons why that should be expected to change. I think that's a a, a product in many ways of the the system uh, and and what is incentivized for for actors throughout the system. Um, and you see that that those who are kind of these wolf warrior ambassadors they aren't you know, aren't usually uh, having negative effects to their careers from uh, those kinds of actions. Uh, they usually uh, continue to move up uh, in the system as a result of it. Um, so I think uh, that that should only ex be expected to continue. I think in terms of personalism and the kind of classic concerns about um, is Xi Jinping going to be getting the right kind of information? Are people going to be, you know, willing to tell him when things are going wrong or that that things are going to, you know, go in the wrong direction in terms of China's national interests as opposed to what might, I guess, in some in some way be seen as good for the the party or or party security? 
Um, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. I, I am, I tend to believe that 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 probably is true. That if you have people that are increasingly around Xi Jinping who are there uh, because they're loyalists, uh, they are probably less likely, um, if anyone was before, to to you know be able to kind of have that conveyor belt of information that goes to the the person who's only who's really the the key decision maker on on just about every issue now. Um, but at the same time, I think there is some value in thinking through, well, if these people truly are, you know, close to Xi, um, is there some, are there some cases in which these are people who actually may be even more able uh, to, to deliver somewhat less than shiny news than those who might have been in these, in these positions uh, if they were, uh, you know, actually uh, there, not necessarily just because they were loyalists. I just kind of throw that out there as a counterpoint to the classic argument that, that he's not going to get that information. But generally, I think we should expect more of a trend in that uh, direction. I don't see necessarily personally anything where this long for hope hoped uh, you know shift to a to a more moderate Xi Jinping once he finally gets what he ultimately wants in terms of his level of power. I don't see any reason to necessarily expect things to go in, in a better direction. And, and if anything, it's it's probably going to get worse, but maybe not in the first year or two. But it's all it's all very much conjecture at this point. I don't think that we should think that we can have a definitive answer. Bonnie, you want to add? Well, first, uh, of course, the political report and the party Congress overall is not really intended uh, to say very much about foreign policy. So there really wasn't very much. Um, and, and so a lot of this, as Dave said, is uh, speculation. Um, in my view, uh, Xi Jinping has been somewhat less risk averse than his predecessor, Hu Jintao, but he has not shown a great appetite uh, for risk. Uh, we, can, we can cite examples where I think he has been somewhat restrained. In the South China Sea, there's quite a lot of use of um, Coast Guard maritime militia boats. We have not seen China actually use its military um, to use force uh, against any other target country. Um, or military assets. They have interfered with them, absolutely, uh, particularly uh, the Australians and the Americans, but uh, they have not uh, fired shots. So I think um, it's a little early to say that he is going to change that policy and try to use force to advance China's objectives. It's part of China's narrative that China has, you know, it's so many thousands of years of being a peaceful country is not a true history. Um, uh, but the last time that China uh, really used force in any significant way was against Vietnam in 1979. Um, and they do like to point out the many wars that the United States has fought and say that they are a more peaceful country. Uh, it, it will be um, actually uh, quite a game changer when China decides to use significant force. And I think it's a when, not an if, but I don't think it's necessarily going to happen anytime soon. And that raises the issue of Taiwan. Um, is uh, reunification a legacy issue for Xi Jinping? Uh, it, there is sufficient evidence available for us to know that 2027 is a goal for development of PLA capabilities. But I still have not found anything that ties those capabilities and that target of 2027 explicitly to Taiwan. 
Um, and certainly there has been nothing that has been said uh, by China's leader or in any major documents or speeches that has set um, a, a goal um, to achieve reunification other than the middle of the century, which is he repeated Xi Jinping in his political report, the same thing he said five years ago, which was that reunification is an inevitable requirement for national rejuvenation. And the goal for achieving that goal is, uh, is the middle of the century, the 100th anniversary in 2049 of uh, the founding of the People's Republic of China. And so um, I still um, am not convinced uh, that Xi Jinping is planning to use force against Taiwan. I think he wants to change this trajectory of Taiwan sort of slipping away from China with US encouragement as they see it. Um, and he is going to use a, uh, a this toolbox of coercive measures that he has developed um, that China has developed over time, growing economic, diplomatic, military uh, coercion, cyber disinformation, et cetera. And so when China says it wants to pursue uh, reunification peacefully, let's just remember that from China's perspective, peaceful includes all of these coercive measures. So I think we don't accept these as peaceful, but they're also not kinetic. And so I think there's still a big question mark as to whether or not uh, Xi Jinping will conclude that using force against Taiwan is necessary or that using large scale force is necessary against another country with which China has a, um, a territorial dispute. And of course that could be India, Japan, uh, it could be Vietnam or the Philippines. I myself uh, continue to believe that the Chinese will try to remain below the threshold of use of kinetic force, that they believe that that serves their interests. So while there might be some useful parallels between uh, Xi Jinping and Putin, I think there's also some important differences. Well, it wouldn't be a conversation about China without asking how the war in Ukraine is affecting Xi's calculus on Taiwan. So Dave, I don't know if you want to pick up on anything that Bonnie said or We'd love to ask, what lessons is she learning from the war in Ukraine? I don't know if you have anything you want to add on that. I was going to take it in a slightly different direction, but I'll just say on that, because um, I was going to try to, I didn't know if you wanted to kind of all go towards the Europe conversation. I was going to talk a little bit about these coercive measures. Ukraine is Europe. Europe but. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, in terms of lessons, um, I would just say, I think that there's there's a lot been a lot of discussion about what militarily China's learning from Russia's difficulties or, you know, or Ukraine's hardiness and, and what that means. I think, you know, there, there, there's a big lesson that China's taking away, I think, in terms of the allied reaction um, to what has happened in, in Ukraine, right? And I feel like um, that is reflected in, in the work report as well. And as, as Bonnie said, you, you have to kind of, there, there's, these things aren't laid out very clearly in the, in the work report and the party Congress generally aren't about laying out specific foreign policy lines. But I think that the language in there about vulnerability and self-sufficiency, um, particularly in the economic space, really reflects to me a lot of that concern about what the U.S. Uh, and our allies have been able to achieve uh, in the economic space in terms of sanctions and export controls on Russia and what we might be able and willing to do in the event of a Chinese uh, invasion of uh Taiwan, or not even just, not even an invasion, right? Something short of that, something that's um, really trying to compel so-called reunification uh, using economic and, and diplomatic and, and military coercive tools, as well as interference from the inside out in, in Taiwan. 
Um, and I, I think um, that concern has been raised uh, in among the Chinese leaders, I believe. I think, uh, you know, there's an understanding, as we all understand, that China is very different from Russia. And so any effort to really harm China's economy and the impact that that could have on the global economy means that it's a very different type of beast. Um, and Chinese leaders, I think, still believe that, especially our friends in Europe, um, particularly maybe one country where whose leaders about to go over to uh, China uh, might be less willing. We'll get other, to that. Yes. Yeah, uh, might be less willing to kind of join in such an effort. But I think that that's that's one of the big lessons that that the Chinese have have taken away is is what we've been able to do there. And this is a, a China that has long, uh, at least when you talk to uh, officials and, and read some of their writings, have talked about the decline of the West, the decline of the United States, and the the I think sense that our alliance network was fraying. And I think what they've seen. Uh, not just with with Europe, but our partners in Northeast Asia has been a strong response to to Russia's invasion. I think that's been striking. Uh, I was just going to say as well, on top of what Bonnie said on the force side, I think there is we should expect uh, that China is going to continue to use uh, whatever coercive measures it has at its hands to try to prevent more countries from uh, shifting somewhat uh, their position on Taiwan, or at least more engagement on Taiwan, and certainly the rhetorical shifts. Um, and, and the differences in, in, for instance, you know, how we talk about Taiwan's representative office the, the, and, and, that as Lithuania did. I think we should expect more of that and we should expect um, more of the kinds of things that we saw just, you know, a week or two, a couple few weeks ago uh, in Manchester, where you had a, a Chinese protester who was, you know, beaten and dragged into the, the Chinese consulate after protesting uh, outside of it. And the, the Chinese consul general afterwards justifying it by saying he was insulting my leader. So I think that those kinds of things we're going to see more of, and I think it's going to create even more um, problems uh, with, between China and, and a lot of the uh, democratic world, even if China does try to uh, make some efforts uh, narrative-wise, propaganda-wise, to try to paper over some of those things to try to improve or at least repair uh, some of the ties with Europe. Um, I, I'm going to take us... Uh, I, I know that... Um... We had we were going to talk about Ukraine and Europe uh, a bit more and uh, and Russia, but I want to take us to the Arctic real quick, uh, if you don't mind, just a little excursion up there. As we as you as you listen to what they said in the in the Congress and as you uh, that the, the, was just held uh, in Beijing and as you look ahead to the next few years, uh, there's been a lot of talk about China becoming even more involved in the Arctic. Did you all pick up any more hints at all that this is something that was uh, also a legacy type of thing uh, for Xi, that, uh, that having a, a uh, more robust Arctic presence is something that, that is still on their agenda, or, or is that not so much the case? So once again, we wouldn't expect to hear any mention of any specific area of the world um, or foreign policy priority. The Belt and Road Initiative got one mention because that's a sort of flagship project of Xi Jinping's, but we wouldn't have expected to see a mention of the Arctic. Um, I think there's no doubt that it remains um, a, a prominent uh, issue on Xi Jinping's agenda. Again, I don't know if there's really any timeline. Ultimately, it depends more, I think, on the melting of the ice than anything else for the commercial value uh, right. of the Arctic for, for Chinese ships. Um, as far as getting military access, there are some scenarios that people are talking about that as 
Russia becomes more dependent on China, um, particularly economically, that Beijing may have more demands from Russia. And when people spin out some ideas as to what kinds of things uh, China might demand, one of those is greater access uh, to Russian facilities in, in the Arctic. Now, whether yeah. Moscow might be willing to allow those that access, that's something else. But you could see in the Arctic, or perhaps uh, China could put pressure on Russia to stop selling weapons to India or to stop developing energy in the South China Sea. Those are the kinds of things that if China decides that it wants to use its leverage, that it might pursue going forward. Yeah. Dave, I just want to actually pick up on what you were saying before. Um, and if you could summarize, how do you think she is looking at Europe currently? I mean, and especially with the war going in Ukraine, I think Europeans in the United States were you know, trying to signal to Beijing that there would be costs associated with its um, relationship with Russia, you know, frustration that China hasn't been willing to step in and pressure Russia to end the war. Um, going forward, how do you think that that she is looking at Europe? Um, and, you know, what should Europeans expect coming from Beijing in the coming years? I think, you know, there has been a recognition uh, in Beijing that there's been some damage done uh, to the relations in much of Europe, uh, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in, in Western European capitals from China's uh, tacit support uh, for, for Russia's uh, invasion uh, and, and the ongoing war. Um, you know, this is something that, as as you all know, is not something that came out of the blue in terms of Europeans um, souring on China. This comes on the heels of, uh, you know, uh, diminishing support for the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, where it actually hasn't uh, made much of a, a dent, despite expectations to the contrary early on. Uh, growing awareness and, and displeasure with uh, China's uh, human rights atrocities. Uh, the economic sanctions we were talking about earlier, that the economic coercion on places like Lithuania. So all of that, I think, and then you have the the Ukraine war. I think has led to a real shift uh, in in Europe on on China. And I think the the Chinese maybe to some extent uh, didn't realize the extent to which they would face that kind of pushback as a result of their their indirect support for Russia. Um, I think they've been somewhat surprised, but I think at the same time um, they're not willing to actually. Do anything differently in order to in order to win back European support. I think you've seen a change in in rhetoric. And you've seen some diplomatic envoys go out uh, to try to paper things over with with Europeans. Um, I think you're seeing obviously there's this very willing um, you know welcome for um, for Chancellor Schultz and for anyone who would want to come and kind of engage with China and, and refocus on the economic dimension of the relationship. And I think that ultimately there's a hope uh, among the Chinese leadership that. At the end of the day, um, you know, Europe may have uh, soured a bit on China. They may they may be seeming some more transatlantic unity on China. But I think the hope is ultimately for especially big players like like Germany, but also Southern Europe, Italy, um, and and to some extent France uh, and others, uh, certainly Greece, um, that there would be at the end of the day a recognition that China is too important for these countries' economic futures. Uh, to abandon and to side too strongly with the United States, particularly at the same time as they're doing what what they've done in terms of you know European companies pulling out of Russia. So um, yeah, 
Yeah, I know you've written kind of about Europe's view on China, so welcome your thoughts on that. But I mean, I guess there's two different ways that Beijing could go. Some have talked about potentially a charm offensive, like recognizing that some of this damage has been done, that they might try to ameliorate that. Um, or, I mean, as Dave was describing too, that they have all of these tools at their disposal, different points of leverage that they can use with the Europeans to get them from changing positions on Taiwan or other things. So which of those two, or is it both? Like, you know, again, same question that I put to Dave, how do you think Beijing is going to approach Europe in the coming years? So I think that the Chinese uh, see Europe as in play. Um, that it's not um, united uh, and that it's also not um, in perpetuity closely aligned with the United States. And it's not part of an anti-China camp that the United States, they believe, is basically seeking to organize. And so as a result, um, I think that this visit by German uh, Chancellor Schultz presents an opportunity for Beijing to drive a wedge, uh, not only uh, among the European countries, but also between the United States and Europe. And I think that's exactly what the Chinese will try to do with this visit. Their, their narrative about it, the topics that they will talk about, the fact that Schultz is bringing businessmen uh, with him. I mean, this is like music to China's ears. And even if Schultz has an agenda that he wants to perhaps be more balanced, I think that the Chinese will make it very difficult to be seen as balanced um, and they will try to control it. We all know that in many meetings that the Chinese have had, including the April summit they had with the EU, that they actually issued a readout of the meeting before the meeting was even over. So this is how the PRC is controlling the narrative uh, for, for these kinds of meetings uh, with the US, the EU, and some other countries. So my view uh, is that um, this is this is an important part of the world to China. Yes, they will try to use different leverage points. They will try to use it for, for some countries. It will be carrots. For others, it will be sticks. But at the end of the day, it's it, it's EU that's you know really the problem um, in many of the countries that that sorry been with many of the policies that it uh, that it pursues. So. Um, I think uh, that the Chinese are going to uh, to try to prevent a really close alignment uh, against China. And there are other countries that they will probably seek to use this approach with as well. And in Asia, the one that I would highlight is South Korea. I believe that they see South Korea as in play too. Do you think that uh, to any extent, I mean, so Obviously, they've incurred costs as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's made it very difficult for them to balance. Do they? Does Beijing see opportunity um, uh, in the kind of economic hardship that Europe is going through? Uh, does that create openings that they'll seek to exploit? I think the one thing I hear, for example, with Germany is like that, that from the Germans' perspective, they don't want to have kind of a two-front confrontation. And uh, German businesses are already so hurt by inflation, high energy costs. You know, that's a, in large part why they're going to Beijing. So do, it, with the kind of economic hardship and the difficult winter um, uh, that we expect, um, is Europe, or sorry, is Beijing looking at Europe 
um, and seeing opportunity. I mean, I like your point, Bonnie, it's at in play, um, but to what extent might they be able to benefit now and kind of flip the script and rather than incurring costs now seek opportunities um, that they can use to their advantage in their relationship with Europe? Well, I'll cite one example that maybe suggests that they're uh, not surprisingly concerned mostly about China as a self-interested power. The Chinese were buying um, extra LNG um, and uh, giving it to uh, Europe. I, I believe it was LNG. Um, and um, then after doing that for a while, they decided, oh, the winter's coming. You know, we really have to make sure that we have to have enough for ourselves. Um, and so now, now they've, they've stopped apparently providing the extra energy. Um, I'm not sure if it's oil or LNG, but that they were purchasing from Russia. They're now uh, apparently keeping more of it for themselves. Uh, maybe they will find other ways to provide uh, some kind of carrots to Europe. But ultimately, I think that the Chinese just calculate that the fact that the Europeans see that they have huge challenges that they face as the winter comes and because if the war continues to go on and they have more tension with Russia, the possibility Russia could use nuclear weapons, all of these concerns, I think they believe will just work in their favor. And I'm not sure that they've concluded they actually have to do anything to ensure that it does, just presents opportunities. Yeah, I would just agree with that. I think there's there's opportunities. There's opportunities to kind of um, subtly indicate, um, you know, the risks that that could happen in the broader relationship. If, for instance, China were not to have approved, uh, you know, the the Costco stake in in the Hamburg port, for instance, these kinds of things are are, are relatively easy for China to to lean on and easier when it's um, when the economic uh, forecast is not looking very good when these countries are already. Um, dealing with uh, what they're going to um, face because of energy shortages as a result of what's happening with Russia. Um, and I think, you know, going forward, what's going to be interesting is watching whether the dynamics uh, in China, we already talked a bit about China's economy, um, whether the kind of uh, less um, shiny outlook for, for China's economy and also the uh, access potentially um, and the lingering impacts of zero COVID uh, and China's general, you know, less openness to, to international business uh, is going to affect the way Europeans start to think about um, about the, the China market. I know that um, you know the EU and, and Ursula von der Leyen and others, uh, EU Chamber of Commerce, have been talking about um, you know some of the same things that we've seen with China's businesses in Russia. Uh, it's not out of the question that the same thing could happen uh, with China. I think that's really striking and interesting to watch uh, for the for the next year or two. Well, we're almost at time. And I think Jim and I are, we're both jockeying to get the last question in here. But since I'm in a good mood, Jim, maybe I'll let us both ask a final question. And then maybe Bonnie and Dave, you can answer both of them. Jim, you go first, and then I'll ask my final question. Such a rare opportunity. This <laughs> hardly ever happens. I, I will remember this Halloween. It's a very special one to me now. Um, the, uh, the, the question was just, how do you think Xi uh, took the saber rattling the nuclear saber rattling from uh, from Moscow from Putin. Um, but is this? We have this the same something... question, Jim. So, like, I don't. This is like a mind meld. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. This, well, this is a very special Halloween. It's getting spooky. This. It's very spooky <laughs> when that happens. It is. It is. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, well, why don't you go ahead and I'll I, I'll set the question up, and now over to you uh, to bring it home, Andrea. 
That was exactly my question, which it's off on a tangent, but you hear a lot that one of the reasons that Putin um, has a disincentive to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine is because it would alienate China. Um, and I wonder if you uh, have a take on that. How, how would you expect Beijing to react to Russia's use of a nuclear weapon? And I guess I'll tack one more on. Is there any prospect that China would pressure or communicate to Russia that it is not um, advisable to do so? Which, which we heard was might have been the conversation when they met a few uh, a month or so ago. Well, I'll go first, and then um, it'll be interesting to see if Dave uh, and I have similar or different views on this. Uh, first, I will will plug Noah Barkin's newsletter. Uh, we Noah is uh, works for Rhodium Group, but also is a um, non-resident uh, visiting fellow with uh, my team at the German Marshall Fund. And he writes a terrific newsletter every month. And he did uh, cite a, an unnamed, of course, Chinese official is telling a European official that uh, China does not want to see nuclear weapons used um, in Ukraine um, and that they would strongly oppose it. Now, who that person was, we don't know. Uh, but uh, this wouldn't surprise me. Uh, it's not in China's interest to see nuclear weapons used. Uh, China has been in a, a difficult position since the beginning of this war, having to straddle its competing interests. And it does have an interest in supporting sovereign international uh, sovereign uh, states. And it has uh, also, I think, a very strong interest in uh, its relationship with, with Russia. Uh, now, if uh, Putin were to use a, a battlefield nuclear weapon, uh, I'm not so sure that China would completely condemn it. They might say, it is very unfortunate that nuclear weapons were used, but how have we gotten to this place? We have gotten here because of NATO and because of the United States, and Putin was pushed into a corner. I could imagine that. Um, I just don't think that we would see a rupture in the China-Russia relationship as a result of the use of nuclear weapon. But it would certainly be an outcome that China doesn't want to see. And then on the second question of whether China would, would warn Putin, um, my understanding from the nature of the conversations that Xi Jinping has with uh, Vladimir Putin um, is that they don't really talk about very difficult issues. Uh, there was one point uh, a, a couple of years ago where uh, Putin said publicly, Xi Jinping has never even raised the South China Sea with me. Well, you know, that's an issue where they disagree. So it's compartmentalized. It's off on the side. You know, they talk about the things that they agree on, um, which is mostly about how they're going to um, weaken uh, U.S. global influence and in, in advance their own shared interest in uh, changing the international order. So um, I personally find it unlikely um, that Xi Jinping would suggest to Putin that he not use nuclear weapons. Um, that said, I think Xi Jinping wants to see this conflict over soon, uh, but that doesn't mean he wants it to be 
over through the use of nuclear weapons. But having it go on um, for a very long period of time isn't in Chinese interest. And it's also not in Chinese interest if Russia completely loses. I mean, including, you know, Crimea as well as Donbass and all of what it occupied in Ukraine. That's a bad outcome. And the third bad outcome for China, which is probably the worst outcome, is the ouster of Putin from power. Hmm. Final words are yours, Dave. Well, I mean, I completely agree with what Bonnie just said. I don't have much to add. I, I would just say, I think, you know, yes, China absolutely would not see it as it's in, in its interests for Putin to use uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, uh, in Ukraine. Um, I think there's, you know, there's several reasons for that. Um, one is I think sometimes we can overstate the extent to which uh, China cares about its international reputation, but to be um, we're very clearly tied to Russia and not not in a position where it can um, as, as Bonnie said, I don't think it would come out and and um, and condemn what Russia did, and therefore it would be in this difficult position of being somehow tainted by being associated with a Putin that has used uh, nuclear weapons on the Ukrainian people. That would not be good for China. It certainly would not be in line with their claims to be in support of of peace and and, and stability. Um, I think um, it would also uh, you know not do very good things for global markets, which is not in China's interests. It could also lower the bar for other states, uh, potentially in, in Northeast Asia, to, to nuclearize. So I think that there's a whole host of reasons why it's not uh, good for, for uh, China if Russia were to do that. Um, and I agree with Bonnie that, that China would come out and probably not uh, openly condemn it. They'd revert back to their, uh, their four shoulds that they're using right now on, on Ukraine. And then, you know, yes, talk about peace uh, and the importance of it, but also talk about Russia's uh, legitimate security interests as they have in the past. So I think that they would find a way to somehow uh, make it uh, NATO's or the U.S.'s fault that, that Russia had to use nuclear weapons, which is unbelievable. But I think that that, that is actually what might happen. And then yeah, on the leverage yeah. piece, I agree as well. I think, you know, le- yes, China has leverage arguably over Russia, um, certainly more than it used to. Um, but the question with leverage is always, it's only leverage if you're actually willing to use it. And I think it's the same question that we've dealt with for years around questions around uh, China's uh, leverage over North Korea and what it does with its nuclear program. Um, there's only so far that China's willing to, to go to actually do that uh, in, in that relationship. And I think that with, with Putin too, and, and, and partly in base of what Bonnie said about the, the Xi-Putin relationship, I just don't see China actually taking the, the limited leverage that it currently has and trying to use it to truly uh, get Russia to change its calculus on whether or not it would go nuclear, sadly. All right. Well, this was a great conversation. There's lots we didn't get to, so we will have to uh, do it again um, in the near future. Um, I think by the time we release this, it won't be Halloween, but I'll say happy Halloween and hope (laughs) there's more treats than tricks. Um, And thank you again for coming back to Brussels Sprouts. Um, We always appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ms. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.